Democrats in Washington have put forward a budget reconciliation bill that includes a section that will strike the law prohibiting the Department of Health and Human Services from negotiating drug prices for Medicare. But can you really call something a negotiation when one side is the federal government? From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with us is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for coming on. No problem. Happy to do it. As you heard in the introduction, we're going to be talking a little bit about drug price negotiation this week. It's uh, something that Democrats seem pretty bullish about right now. Republicans seem hesitant, and we've had our concerns that we've mentioned on the program before, and we're going to go in-depth in that uh, a little bit later in the program. But I want to start with the uh, recent numbers coming out of the Kaiser Family Foundation for their COVID vaccine monitor. And they've been following American attitudes towards the COVID vaccines throughout the entirety of the pandemic, um, especially since we started hearing about the research into going into the vaccines. And their July numbers are out, and they're focusing on American parents' attitudes, particularly parents for for children uh, ages six months to four years, because that's the newest group that can get the vaccine. They're focusing on attitudes from these American parents uh, and how what they think about the COVID-19 vaccine. And we wanted to go over some of those numbers to get started. And Ryan, I just want to start off with, with the first one that I think is definitely the headline piece from this segment. And that's that 43% of parents of children uh, under five who are eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine have said they will definitely not vaccinate their child for COVID-19. And that's up nearly 10%. That's up over 10% from a year ago. And I'm just curious what your initial reaction to a number like that is. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, I think there's a little bit of is a lack of real education about what the vaccine is, what it does and why it does it. You know, I think some of the numbers you'll get into later, especially like how few people have actually talked to their pediatrician about it, tend to support that for me. I think part of it is, and the numbers show this, that it's the vaccine in general, both for adults and kids, um, has been politicized, um, Mm -hmm. as well as a natural um, protectionistic feeling from parents to want to protect kids from something. It's it's that old thing about, well, you know, I can do something to me, but I got to really be sure before I do it to my child. Right. And I, I fully understand that. I have a adult son with autism. And when he was young, there was a lot of confusing and some misleading information about vaccines and do they cause autism. And I, I, I will be honest to say my wife and I hesitated before we started to get our other children vaccinated when they were babies. So, you know, so it's natural to want to protect your children. I get that. But I think a large part of that number is some lack of education, misinformation, and, you know, this whole topic being politicized. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the political, politi- excuse me, the politicization of, of the COVID vaccines, um, because the Kaiser Family Foundation did split this into political parties to see what the different responses were going to be. And when they did that, 64% of Republican parents said they would definitely not vaccinate their child. And 
even this number even seemed high to me. 21% of Democrats also said they wouldn't do the same. Do you think that it's possible? I mean, this is possibly one of the first times we're seeing uh, a vaccine politicized in the way um, that it has been. Is there any going back from this? Is there any way to convince people um, who have been convinced that this is a big political sham that it really isn't? I don't think so. I think there's too much water under that bridge. Um, I think that, and I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. It was a mm-hmm. crazy time when the pandemic started, but the government and I'm and, it, and I'm, I I say on both sides of the aisle really botched the um, initial explanation and, if you will, almost sales pitch on this and education on this vaccine. Um, I think there was some assumptions that everyone would view this as you know our you know the savior to and the solution to the pandemic and it turned out not to be but i don't think you're ever gonna you know incredibly move that needle those numbers on that split between republican democrat have been fairly constant whether you talk about Mm -hmm. you know the adult vaccine whether you talk about people's views on was this really a pandemic that killed a million people or not i mean that's not an unusual split on this whole topic do you think that harms uh, America as we try to overcome the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the bad news is we're never going to overcome it. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've that that ship has sailed. Our opportunity to really get rid of the virus is no longer there, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and largely because we did not adopt the vaccine fast enough and with enough people to really kill it. I mean, the understanding is this viruses, when they enter a host only have a couple of different solutions, either the virus kills the host or the host kills the virus. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stay there forever. Okay. Now the trick to getting rid of the virus would have been to have the host kill the virus faster than it could then go to another host or be spread. Well, you know, that, that I think that ship has sailed. Now, the good news is um, that luckily this virus seems to be mutating in such a way that the newer strains, while they are either as contagious or more contagious, are less severe. So most epidemiologists, most doctors you talk to say, we will probably always have COVID. Hopefully, it will continue to mutate and turn into something like a mild flu or the common cold. And we may end up getting it as individuals once or twice a year. And again, if it's just a cold or a mild flu and it doesn't kill a million people, okay, well, then I guess we overcame the virus, but we're not going to get rid of it and get it right. off the, the and, and And I should have clarified that that's yeah. what I meant by overcame yeah. is that it's, it becomes endemic and it, it, yeah. much, much like what you said with flu, cold, other right. common colds. One of the concerns um, that some of these parents had uh, was that the vaccine will not protect their children from getting sick with COVID-19. And 70% of parents said that they were very concerned or somewhat concerned about that possibility. And that number was about the same for both vaccinated and unvaccinated parents. Especially with right now, as we have the news that broke over the weekend, that that Joe Biden did have a, the president did have a rebound of COVID after taking his Paxlovid treatment, which um, according to some of the experts happens about 20% of the time. Mm -hmm. How much of that should actually be a concern that the COVID vaccine won't protect them from getting the virus. Well, and, and I think this again goes to the root of the, the 
poor job that was done from an education standpoint. I've talked to a lot of people, adults and parents of children who say, well, I don't know why I should get the vaccine. It doesn't prevent you from getting COVID. And I'm like, you know, you're absolutely right. It doesn't prevent you from getting COVID. It helps you lower your chances of getting COVID. But what's more importantly, is it does a great job of helping you get really sick and dying. And the analogy I use is I say, by your logic, because it doesn't prevent it, well, then you should disable the airbag and take out the seatbelts in your car because they don't prevent you from dying in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Now, they significantly improve your chances of surviving a car accident. But if your litmus test is, well, I'll only do things that 100% prevent a bad outcome, well, then get rid of the airbags and the seatbelt. Now, airbags and seatbelts were better marketed as helping you survive a crash. And what the COVID vaccine should have been better marketed as is it will significantly help you from dying or becoming very sick. On the pediatric end, it should have been it will significantly improve, you know, the or reduce the chances of your child ever ending up in the hospital with this. And by the way, as an added benefit, it does help you reduce the chances of catching COVID, largely because what will happen is, you know, you might get infected, you might have the spores or whatever, but your antibodies kill it before it could ever really ever become symptomatic. So again, I think that whole thing about, well, I'm not doing it because it doesn't prevent my kid from getting COVID is a lack of education on the government's part about what this vaccine really does. And speaking of lack of education on, on this issue, some have argued that the definition you just gave of the COVID vaccine is moving the goalposts, so to speak, on mm -hmm. what vaccines are supposed to do. Is it moving the goalposts? Well, no, not really. I mean, there are a lot of vaccines that don't prevent the contracting of something. They just kill it before it can do anything. Again, getting, you know, any, any virus, any viral disease, isn't a problem if it never becomes symptomatic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people who will, you know, well, and, and here's another, another example that I use. Um, the HIV virus, okay? Right. We've gotten to the point of treatment on that, et cetera, that you see the ads on TV that say, you know, this drug, you know, gets you to a stage where you're undetectable, mm -hmm. okay? You still have, technically have the virus, it's just you're undetectable, which means you can't spread it, and it means you're not gonna die from it. Well, that's success. Right. So there are a lot of, you know, a lot of vaccines and everything that keep you from becoming symptomatic or really sick or, you know, like COVID or HIV from dying from it. Um, but we just sort of have it, that ingrained in our head of what prevents it. No, it really doesn't. Um, and, and this vaccine's no different. The problem is they didn't explain it that way. And then add to the fact that it's politicized, it made that some people be able to say, well, they're lying to you because it doesn't prevent it. And then when cornered with that, Fauci and the rest of the doctor, well, yes, it doesn't prevent, and it looked like moving the goalpost. When right. people who understood the vaccine and the people from the FDA approved it knew that that wasn't what it was doing. It was all around, let's keep people out of the hospital and, and keep them from dying. And, and a little bit later in, in the final thought for today's program, I'll have I'll have some numbers about people who thought the uh, the messaging coming from the federal government mm -hmm. has been confusing, mm -hmm. and uh, especially how many people have talked to their pediatrician about this. Um, I want to throw go through a few of the other concerns and, and just see what your reactions are for them. And I'm going to um, include the the first two in some of our bullet points together, and that's that. Actually, I'll split them up because the differences are a little more impressive that way. 79% of vaccinated parents and 83% of unvaccinated parents 
said they were very or somewhat concerned about serious side effects from the COVID-19 vaccines. Is that a legitimate concern, you think? Um, if the word serious is in there, no. Okay. I don't, none of the data shows that. It's, it's just like when the adult vaccine came out and people were like, oh my God, people are having heart attacks. No, the data doesn't show that. Right. Um, and people are having this. I mean, what was there? The, you know, somebody was saying that the vaccine made her boyfriend impotent or whatever. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. So are there side effects? I, from that, the I think that was Nicki Minaj. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, are there side effects of the vaccine? Sure. I mean, I, you know, one of the doses I got, I, I felt a little lousy the next day. That's not a serious side effect. A serious side effect to me is something that sort of, you know, needs medical attention. Um, so the data doesn't show that. Now, again, this is a sort of a bad um, education and, and, um, and marketing, if you will, on the government side. And before someone tweets me to, to go look at the VAERS information from the, from the Vaccine Adverse Reporting System, uh, that's raw data that hasn't been determined. So Well, and it's also true, true, and unrelated data. Yes. So the VAERS system is, you know, for example, if I got the vaccine on a Monday and dropped out of a heart attack on a Tuesday, I would probably be put into the VAERS system. Mm -hmm. and, and those two things are true, true, and unrelated you know, the fact that right. I had a heart attack. I mean, there's stuff in the, there was stuff in the VAERS data of somebody who got a vaccine and then got into a car accident the next day. I mean, come on now. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it's, it's, that data is fraught with problems and it's not meant to be a causal relationship. It's meant to be a starting point to say, Hey, if we saw of the, you know, the first million doses of the vaccine, 500,000 people had a heart attack within the first 30 days. That's a higher incident of that condition. We should look at that seriously right. and ask mm -hmm. why. It's not meant to be a, you know, first this, then there, you know, what is it? Ergo proctor sumer or something where first mm -hmm. this, then that mm -hmm. scenario. Another concern that came up in here, 74% um, of vaccinated parents and 89% of unvaccinated parents said there's not enough known about the long-term side effects. And this is another one where, you know, you could answer that question purely by talking to your physician. Um, now, I'm lucky in that I get to talk to physicians every day and I right. get to pick their brain on this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So when, when the vaccine was first coming out, it was one of my first questions. You know, well, heck, they've only studied this for a certain period of time. How do we know there are long-term side effects? And one of the first things that one of the doctors who, who I work with who does a lot of research said, well, Ron, you got it wrong, first of all. Vaccines are never studied over a long period of time because they don't stay in your body that long. They don't change what's going on in your body, especially this one. What this one does is sends a signal to your body to start producing antibodies against the spike protein. But the actual, the, the material in the vaccine is out of your body within 72 hours. We don't have to do long-term side effects because there, by nature, aren't any. It's not still there. And it's not changing anything other than chilling your body to do something it would automatically do anyway. That's different than, let's say, a drug. If you're going to be taking a drug every day or for the rest of your life, we do have to study long-term side effects. That's why the trials are longer, because you're going to be on it for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Right. You know, um, so, you know, that's another one of those things when people talk about long-term side effects, it's the wrong question. There are no long-term side effects because it's not in your body for a long period of time. One of these in here that, that struck me as interesting because it kind of prolongs um, 
an item of misinformation that's been out there for a little while, and that's that more than half of parents of children between six months and four years say that the COVID-19 vaccine poses a bigger risk to their child than a COVID-19 infection. And this spreads from the thought that, uh, you know, children don't get sick and don't die from COVID, which it's true that that's not the majority of children, but it does happen. And the it's, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but these vaccines will help just as we talked about, prevent severe hospitalization and death. Well, and yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the people who take that position, and, and I, look, I respect every parent's right to make a choice about their child. This isn't that. But the people who make that decision, in my opinion, are missing two incredible points. The first one is that, yes, the, the odds of your child getting COVID and getting seriously ill or dying are much smaller than it is for somebody my age, 57, mm -hmm. or definitely somebody Joe Biden's age, okay? Mm -hmm. Won't argue that at all. But if it happens to your child, and it's happened to children, that's one of one, you know? Right. Nobody's gonna bury a child who died of COVID and go, well, <laughs> you know, odds really small, I guess I lost. You're gonna feel terrible. And some of the questions I ask those parents is, how bad will you feel if it happens to your child and you could have prevented it? Okay. The second thing they miss is the other part of the vaccine is to help this from not from your child from getting it and spreading it to somebody who is more at risk. How bad are you going to feel if your child gets COVID and didn't need to or was symptomatic for longer or had a, a you know, a higher viral count and therefore gave it to grandma and she dies? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, who wants to carry that around? Right. So it, you know, it gets back to, yes, are the chances of your child getting really sick and dying small? Yes, they are. But if it happens, it's like the bad side of winning a lottery ticket. Mm. And what? how would you feel if, again, your child gave it to somebody else and they got very sick and died? It just, to me, since there's really no risk, you know, any clinically documented risk, and I don't think there's any real risk to the, to the vaccine, why not? You know, I don't, right. I don't, I don't get it. But then, Again, other people think differently. The last number I wanted to point out, which I think is um, interesting and a little bit concerning, and granted, this is this is a minority of the population that was surveyed. 22% of vaccinated parents and 35% of unvaccinated parents said that they wouldn't be able to find, they wouldn't be able to get a vaccine from a child from a place that they trust. I am under the impression right now that many um, family medicine doctors, many hospitals are offering the COVID vaccine, mm -hmm. in, many pharmacies are offering mm -hmm. the COVID vaccine mm -hmm. for children. What does that say about our healthcare system in general? What does it say about American attitudes in general if they don't think that they can trust their pediatrician or their local pharmacy or their hospital to give a vaccine to their child? Well, I think you hit that. I, I think that's a telling point about American society right now more so than the vaccine because I think right now you could pose a number of questions about trust and a large percentage of those same people would say they don't trust anything mm -hmm. they don't trust their government they don't trust the last election they don't trust doctors they don't trust everybody's out to get them and everything's a big conspiracy theory and that's scary that one out of five people are saying I don't trust my doctor I mean, that's, you know, and right. I've had, I've had people tell me that very thing on the adult side when this first came out where I'd say, well, look, you know, I, I was talking to one individual and I said, well, if you think this is really that dangerous, then 
how do you explain the fact that at the time, I think like 95% of all practicing physicians have been vaccinated? Wouldn't you think they'd be smart enough to know it's dangerous? And some of them at least would say, hell no. And they're responsible. They're in on it too. They're getting money from somebody. I don't trust them mm -hmm. either. Yeah. I'm like, so it's easier for you to believe that every physician out there is somehow getting secretly paid and enough money that they would put their own life at risk just to try to trick you into something. I mean, boy, that's a really long way to go down the logic path. So, right. but I, I think that's where we are in society these days. And a, and a point that I made in, in a previous um, role was that if you, if, if this was really botched, if all of the studies were botched, if all mm -hmm. of the studies on efficacy and safety were botched, the scientific community would go nuts. Mm -hmm. They would not sit down and take it lightly. And um, unfortunately, there seems to be uh, this thought that there's this big establishment that's out to get Americans. And I, you know, as much as I'm not a big fan of big government, I don't think that to be the case. Yeah, I mean, uh, healthy skepticism about our government is a great thing. Because trust mm -hmm. me, there's plenty of there to be skeptical about. But like you say, getting to the conclusion that everybody's in on it and everybody's on the take and it's all just designed to and pull if you disagree one over. if you disagree with me you're in on it too you're in it too that, right. you know I'm like wow that's uh boy we're you know we're really really working really hard to try to build an argument for a preconceived position I, I want to stay and this will be my last question I think on the mm -hmm. subject but I want to stay with just the generic politicaliza politicization geez it's a little hard to speak English today. Little <laughs> to stay with the politicization of the vaccines right now and of our health establishment in general. Um, I mentioned on a, the podcast short a couple of weeks ago that in the 2022 midterms, Republicans are really focusing still on COVID lockdowns. They're focusing on ma vaccine mandates, mask mandates, even though I think we are about a year and a half away f out from mm -hmm. Any of that still being the case, at least mask mandates, unless you count airports. That was earlier mm -hmm. this year. Um, even here in Michigan, there are people running for governor that that's their whole platform is I sued our current governor for all of her COVID policy. What is that going to do to Americans when we move down the road um, for the next pandemic? And we're going to sit here and have political. What what's going to happen if these people get elected and they dismantle some of the protections that we have in place for the next pandemic? Well, I, I think it, there's, to me, there's two questions. Your, your first one's a great one is, which is, you know, what happens if we end up with a, whether it's state, local, or federal government with a majority of people in power who ran on this idea that the pandemic was horribly handled and none of it should have ever happened. And again, I'm not willing to give an A plus to, you know, to the federal government or state governments on how things were handled. In hindsight, you can always look back and go, you know what, mm -hmm. that should have been done earlier or that should have been dropped earlier. So, you know, I'm not saying it was perfect, but if you've got a controlling interest of people who have ran on this idea that it was, all of it was wrong, you're right. They could start dismantling some of the protections that we're trying to put into place. Second question is, regardless of who's in power, since this one got so politicized and happened so quickly, and, you know, to what both parties feel like is probably their benefit, you know, they, they're both campaigning on, you know, look, I did the right thing, or you did the wrong thing. What happens the next time there's a pandemic? Do we not do anything while both political parties argue over whether we should do something or nothing? That's what scares me even more. Mm -hmm. We survived this one, thank goodness. 
Um, but, you know, if we don't figure out how to handle something like this without turning it into a blue, red, left, right argument, which it never should have been, man, the next one may be really, really bad. Right. Well, that's the numbers right now from the July COVID vaccine monitor from the Kaiser Family Foundation. We'll have that linked on the show notes for this episode of the Flatlining Podcast. Moving on now to drug price negotiations. It's something that Democrats have been a little bit bullish on lately, and we're going to spend some time talking about it today. Currently, Medicare drug pricing negotiations is prohibited under federal law. This is from the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003. The secretary may not interfere with the negotiations between drug manufacturers and pharmacies and may not require a particularly particular formulary or institute a price structure for the reimbursement of covered Part D drugs. Ron, why was that included in the included in the original Medicare Modernization Act? Um, really, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, when has the government ever really negotiated? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It sets a price. Now, the closest the government does to negotiate, and and I'll, I'll get into the reasons for this in a second, is like for whenever, like say they're buying a new fighter jet and they put it out for bids, and they right. do a, a bid process. All governments are sort of forbidden from negotiating because they've got too much authority and too much power. If the federal government wanted to really negotiate with their ability to levy taxes or put in penalties or anything like that, it would be a little bit like the, you know, the old, and my apologies for the bad accent here, but the old stereotypical mafia, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. you got a nice business here. It'd be same if it burned down. Right. They're not negotiating your protection payment, they're telling you, if you don't pay me what I want, I'm going to burn down your business. And the government could do the same thing. So the other problem with it was, what happens if they negotiate and say, I want to pay two bucks a pill for this pill, and the the manufacturer says, no, it's three or nothing, and the government says nothing. Well, now what they've done is taking Medicare recipients and taking one of the drugs off the table for them. So, you know, they're really in an awkward position as a government because you have all the power, it's really not negotiation, it's price setting. In a capitalistic society, we don't like price fixing, we think it has some bad things. Or they just walk away, at which point you've got all these Medicare people who, no fault of their own, can't get access to something. So that's why it was put in. Now, you know, everything has bad side effects. Has it led to, you know, increased drug pricing? Sure it has. But one of the questions should be, well, what's worse? A government that flexes at muscles and just sets prices or, you know, higher drug costs, or is there a better option that, that solves it without either one of those? Mm-hmm. And this too could be, I mean, right now it's being uh, put in the budget reconciliation bill and, and, be, and to do this or doing it this way allows it to go through a simple majority in the mm-hmm. Senate as opposed to uh, the uh, 60 vote majority uh, required for most bills. And so when they're doing this, um, and they are currently meeting with the parliamentarian to determine whether or not this counts as something that can be budget reconciliation. Um, 
it gives the Secretary of the of Health and Human Services the power to, to negotiate some of these prices. Could this be a political bomb for the Democrats if they lose the White House and Congress in the future and Secretary of Health and Human Services does exactly what you just said and they say, yeah, we'll take nothing? Yeah, well, yeah. So there's, you know, there's the be careful what you ask for, you just might get it problem. Mm-hmm. So first of all, one of the things that people understand with the bill that's in there, it's a very limited number of drugs. Okay, so it's not right. across the board. Yes. And it's not some of the really high cost stuff, the, the new drugs. So there's parameters in there on how many they can do. There's parameters in there, they have to have been out for at least so many years. They can't have a generic equivalent. So it's a really small subset of oral medications. So um, it, it's not everything. Um, so, you know, the Democrats tout this as really curbing the healthcare cost. It's not going to. It can't by nature. And that's mm-hmm. been negotiated. Now, the other problem is you're, you're right. What will happen is if this passes and let's say Secretary Becerra says, you know, for that pill that, that meets this criteria, you're currently charging 10 bucks. I want to pay 5 bucks. And if the manufacturer says, ain't happening, well, then you could lose access. And what do you say to all the seniors who are on that pill that the next time they go to fill it, um, they say, I'm sorry, but Medicare won't pay for this. Okay, so, you know, you got to be careful about what the downstream side effects of that are. The other thing, and this is always one of those push on the balloon discussions. So let's say you take a billion dollars out of a manufacturer for, you know, these five high volume drugs that have been out for a long time, but don't have a generic equivalent. These are a lot of for-profit companies. They're not just going to go to their shareholders and go, well, you know, we lost a billion. They're going to get it somewhere else. And right. they're going to take the new drug that comes out um, that's high cost, et cetera, that doesn't fit this criteria. And they go, well, got to add a bunch of money to that price. That's where I'm going to make my money up. Mm-hmm. You know, for-profit companies make profit. That's what they do, and they're very good at it. And so it's not like they're going to go, oh, darn, put one over on me on that. I don't know how to counter that. Oh, they've got very good people that will counter that. Kaiser Family Foundation's got a timeline on their website for if it were this were to pass this year, its implementation schedule on, up until 2029. And start if it were to pass this year and signed into law, uh, in 2023, it would require drug companies to pay rebates if the drug prices rise faster than inflation. Mm-hmm. Is that a reasonable thing to include, or do you think that that's overdoing it and, and again, putting the thumb of the government on private businesses? Well... Um, in general, uh, and I don't think there have been a whole lot of examples where you can point to government price fixing as a great solution to an inflationary problem. I mean, it just, you know, it, it, it hasn't been done much to much success, largely because the private sector and the free market economy is much better at getting around it, you know, um, it, it's why, you know, we keep having tax laws and people still figure loopholes. I mean, mm-hmm. so in general, I just don't think this is the right solution. I think we got to have a solution to the cost of drugs, but this isn't the right one. Um, the second thing is when they talk about, well, if, you know, if drug prices inflate more than X percent, um, you know, you've got to make this rebate. Well, to some degree, that's a little bit like some of the fallacy of, you know, auto manufacturers have to have an average um, you know, miles per gallon right. at a certain target. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, can you still go out and buy an extremely fast car that gets nine miles to the gallon? Sure you can. Well, they've figured out ways to make sure they're hitting the average while still providing the consumer with what they want. 
one of them, and I, you know, I don't mean to go down through the cars. Mm-hmm. You know, those car, cars all have those things now where the engine automatically shuts off if you're stopped. Right. Yep. To save gas. Well, they factor that into that car's average gas mileage. And you know what? Every car who has that has is a button on your dash to turn that thing off. Mm-hmm. Most people turn it off because it's annoying to them. Well, are yeah. we really achieving higher gas mileage, or did they just figure out a, a loophole? So the drug manufacturers will do the same thing. You know, it's it, no it, different. It, it's interesting you mentioned the loophole just because Ford isn't making cars anymore. They're only doing trucks and, and the Mustang mm-hmm. and their SUVs. So I'm wondering how they're hitting their um, – unless they've just made their trucks get that much better or they all have the engine shutoff feature that you can just push the button and, and turn it off. Yeah. Uh, 2024, the reconciliation would eliminate the 5% coinsurance for Part D catastrophic coverage. Uh, what does that mean, and is that a good or bad provision? Well, I think what you see here is a lot of this is a combination of the political desire to have a 10-second soundbite that will get me votes for whatever party I'm in. Okay. And for the Democrats, where this is, we're, we've finally done something to lower drug cost. Well, not substantially, not really. And we've done it by allowing Medicare to negotiate. Well, not really, but that's a nice soundbite, and people like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Combined with, let's you know also make this palatable for a large voting block, which are senior citizens. Well, I'm not only lowering drug costs, I'm giving you back because I'm eliminating this coinsurance. On, so you even have to pay less. In addition to what I'm doing, it would be interesting to see, and I haven't seen it yet, a, an honest, real scoring by the CBO on how much this really does save or how much this adds to the deficit. Because just from what I'm looking at it with what they're giving back and how little I think this is really going to bend the cost curve, I don't think this saves money. It's a political thing. It, to that question you had, it's in this Kaiser report. Uh, CBO uh, estimates it would reduce the federal deficit by $288 billion uh, over the next 10 years. Yeah, so so $20 billion a year over the next 10 years on a federal budget over the next 10 years that I think is going to be somewhere averaging around 5 to $6 trillion. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a little bit like me saying I'll solve my my you know my family's financial woes by cutting out you know one coke a year. I right. Mean, um, that's probably not going to be material. Um, the next one I want to add, I just want to go through this timeline real quick mm-hmm. before we get further in. Twenty twenty five adds a two thousand dollar out of pocket cap in Part D and other drug benefit changes. That sounds similar to that coinsurance thing. Yeah. It's, it's a way to get the voting block going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I lowered the cost. I took, I, you know, I put money, more money back in your pocket. I, ta- I capped your out-of-pocket expenses. These are all wonderful campaigns. And, and trust me, not bad goals. I mean, you know, lowering costs and helping out senior citizens are wonderful things to do. I just don't think this really does it. And then from 2026 to 2029, it phases in how many uh, Part D drugs and then Part B and D drugs uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services can negotiate for right. that year. 2026 is 10 Part D drugs. Uh, 2027 is 15. Mm-hmm. In 2028, it's 15 Part B and D. And in 2029, it's uh, 20 uh, Part B and D. So it's interesting with the CBO score, 
of 288 billion over the next 10 years even though you're re reducing you're reducing those drug prices down which may see you know some people will see an impact in their in their pocket in their wallet um it's not making a big dent on the federal budget right yeah and that's that's the point and and, and think about it so 2026 10 medicare part d drugs 10 drugs that they can quote unquote negotiate on there are over 20,000 fda approved prescription medications on the market right now, 20,000. We're going to negotiate on 10 of them. Mm -hmm. That tells you one of the reasons why <laughs> this really isn't, you know, more than a drop in the bucket. Right. There are a number of uh, columnists out there who um, are either both praising this or criticizing mm -hmm. it. Uh, a couple that I pulled up today, one was from uh, Sally Pipes of the Pacific uh, Research Institute. Uh, she's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow in healthcare policy there. Um, and she correctly points out that it's not negotiations, that they're price controls. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's difficult to say you're negotiating with the federal government when it's the federal government. Right. Um, it's exactly what you talked about. It's almost the, the mafia, um, the, the mafia scenario. Mm -hmm. She raised an interesting point, and I wanted to get your opinion on this as well, that according to the latest federal data from between June of last year and this year, um, prescription drugs have only risen by about two and a half percent. And when you compare that to something like groceries, um, which are up about 10%, or airline failure, which is about 35%, that's not a big jump. Is this really what uh, the federal government should be spending their time on right now to uh, lower the cost of prescription jugs? Well, um, a couple things. Um, and, and I, you know, I feel like I can can say this because my educational background, I'm, you know, my master's degree in economics and statistics mm -hmm. yep. and Harry Truman once said, and appropriately so there are three kinds of liars in this world, liars, damn liars, and statisticians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can pick pieces of data and try to, and be true, but try to make an inference that really isn't what the data says. So um, yes, she's picking a time period and she's picking oral medications not high cost infusion drugs, injections, okay. et cetera, mm -hmm. which are inflating much faster. Okay. So sure, if you let me pick the time period and, and she's picking a time period when we're in, you know, astronomical general inflation because of gas prices, et cetera. Yeah, it's what she's saying is not true. It's just also not what she's wanting to infer. Um, both sides on this argument are making a bigger deal out of it than it really is. You know, the Democrats are touting it as this is going to be the savior of Medicare, and it's not. It's not that much money. It's a very limited thing. You know, it's really not impacting the cost of drugs dramatically. And the Republicans are saying, oh, my God, you know, this isn't even a problem. Yes, it is. And it's going to cause the whole drug industry to break down and we'll never have new drugs and other things, which it's not. It's, again, you know, it's not that much money. It's not that big of a deal. But both sides are using it to for their political advantage. Mm hmm. She makes a point in here as well about pharmacy benefit managers. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about what those are and why some consider them to be a problem in our healthcare system. So I, personally, I, I think pharmacy benefit managers are a problem in our healthcare system. Okay. Now it's one where, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. I mean, the market has been set up to create a market niche for these pharmacy benefit managers, and they basically get in the middle of the transition and, they, and transaction, and they arbitrage it, uh, you know, and they play the game of rebates and all this, and it's incredibly complicated and incredibly, you know, 
problematic. And yes, it does increase list price of drugs. And these PBMs make a lot of money doing it. And they show savings for their customer at the expense of others. My problem with the PBMs is they offer no value in the system. They're a middleman. They're okay. an arbiter. And one of the things we've learned in other areas of our economy, take Amazon, for example, is, man, you can cut out a lot of the middlemen. Now, unfortunately for some businesses, those middlemen were stores and malls. And, mm -hmm. and yep. I can offer the same product at lower cost by just getting rid of all that extra middleman cost. You go direct to, you know, uh, to manufacture, if you will. I, I cut out that whole distribution chain. And, and PBMs added themselves into that. Now, they're allowed to because of the way they, the, you know, the whole system is set up. But I don't think they add any value. And, you know, to that degree, she's right. I mean, if you want to look for where we're leaking money, look at the whole PBM thing. We should fix that. What would what would be an appropriate way to fix that, you think? Well, I, I think a couple of things. First of all, um, you've got to have some market forces to help hold down exorbitant price increases. Okay. Um, now, once a a um, a drug is off um, its patent, okay, and then generics can come, mm -hmm. or even with um, drugs with multiple um, competitors, antibiotics, statins, those kind of things. If everyone's drug benefit, instead of having a copay, had either a fixed price for the class or a percentage, let's say mm -hmm. that everything was, doesn't matter the, the cost of the drug, we're going to pay 90% of whatever the cost is. And we'll mm -hmm. let the manufacturer of the statin or the antibiotic or the high cost drug, you know, set whatever price they want to charge for it. Okay. Well, then when you're at the pharmacist and they could say, look, your, your doctor prescribed, and I'm just going to pick things. I'm not being, you know, yep. your doctor prescribed the statin A, you know, you're out of pocket for that is 10 bucks a month. Or there's another statin that really is, does the same thing. It's five bucks a month. Which one do you want? Mm -hmm. Well, what's going to drive, you know, market forces are going to drive down to the five bucks a month. And then the one that's 10 bucks a month is going to try to get its price down. That's what happens in free market economies. So if that were the case and the consumer was had bought into it, then on the really high cost stuff, there should be some semblance of coverage based on efficacy and price. So if a new cancer drug is produced, okay. Mm -hmm. And it improves survivability by 1%. Mm -hmm. Technically, it's clinically better. But there should be some decision-making process to say, well, 1% better, you get to charge 1% more. If you're going to try to charge 100% more, we're just not going to cover it because that doesn't make economic sense. Right. Okay. So there are ways to create market forces to do what you want to do, which is exactly why, you know, laptops are a whole lot cheaper now than when they first got made because mm -hmm. competition came in and drove the price down. Same thing with what's happening right now with, you know, electric vehicles or other right. things that yep. are new. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting too, that with the rise in healthcare, with the rise in prescription drug prices, it's given rise to new companies that have attempted to go in such as, I mean, I know we've talked about this on a previous program, mm -hmm. um, like GoodRx as a discount mm -hmm. program, just bypassing right. the insurance and the pharmacy benefit manager altogether. Yeah. I mean, how scary is that, that you've got this benefit that pays insurance and you might be better off just not using it and paying cash? Right. I mean, that, that shows you just how bad the PBM market is screwed up is that, you know, I mean, I can't think of another thing where that would be the case. 
you know, where you've got something that would, you know, somebody's going to pay for it for you. No, no, please don't pay for it. I'm going to be much better off just paying it for myself full price than using your benefit. Mm -hmm. But that's the PBM market. And this is something I came across today, and I didn't I didn't read too much into it just because I didn't know I wasn't sure how it was going to fit to our discussion. But a, a number of these PBMs seem to be um, running into the same problem that some of these um, physician groups are, and that's that they're selling out to private equity. Mm-hmm. Does this um, how does that play a role in the in the pharmacy benefit manager arena? How, rather, how does private equity play a role in the pharmacy benefit manager arena? And would it be worthwhile to get those people out or does it make sense to just get rid of the arena altogether well i think the the overall is get rid of the arena you know Mm -hmm. in in some respects it's a little bit like the old argument about you know the best way to win the war on drugs is to get rid of the demand supply won't happen if there's not demand these private equity firms or insurance companies buy their own pbms or own their own pbms Mm -hmm. which is its own problem um if there wasn't profit to be made arbitraging these things, then private equity wouldn't want it. Insurance companies wouldn't want it. I mean, when an insurance company owns their own PBM, that's a little bit like taking the mafia arrangement where you're going to pay me, you know, not to burn your place down. And I own the fire department that's going to put it out when it happens. You got to pay them. I mean, right. that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's ludicrous. Um, but just get rid of the whole arena and then the whole problem dissolves. I want to turn back to the economics of it now and turning to a piece by Robert Moffat, PhD, uh, from the Heritage Foundation, who wrote in Real Clear Health this week. Uh, I like I really do like his last paragraph in here. And he says, uh, for over 4000 years, from King Hammurabi the Great to the Roman Emperor Diocletian to Tricky Dick Nixon, politicians have been fatally attracted to imposing price controls on various commodities. And every time they have wound up distorting markets and shifting costs, undercutting production and supply discouraging investment, and guaranteeing shortages of goods and services for individuals and families. And we've already discussed how this is kind of, this is absolutely an exaggeration about what this particular bill will do. Um, But is it a slippery slope to what, if Democrats retain control of of Congress, and if they retain the White House in 2024, is this a slippery slope for how our health care could be more controlled by the federal government? Oh, most definitely. So there's a couple of thoughts that I had, and I, and I, I love the article as well and, and his comments. The first thought is, and I think he would have been, he could have easily added this, because the reality is, and what no politician, whether you're president, senator, representative, who can, you know, what the reality is, is they have very little impact on the U.S. economy. Really, mm-hmm. their ability to control what happens in the U.S. economy is extremely limited. Now, Nobody wants to run on the platform of, hey, elect me. I can't do anything anyways. You know? right. <laughs> so they all want to, oh, I'll fix inflation or I'll fix. You will not. You know, come on. Um, so that's the first thing. And that's why they, they love this illusion of doing things to show that they, you know, that they can impact the economy. When I think of their deepest, darkest fears, they know they can't. But, and to, to, to use sort of a bad analogy here, oh, this could be the gateway drug to real price controls. You know, if if this got passed and let's say there is a, you know, a unrelated reduction for a year in drug expenditures or inflation, you know, that somebody's going to see well, if getting if if doing this on 10 drugs would get us a 2% reduction. Imagine what doing it across the board would be if a little of this is good, a lot of it's great. Right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's one of my concerns. Anytime there's sort of an intrusion on trying to control markets. 
um, boy, it's it can be really enticing. And the first time you you know you take a hit of that drug, boy, then you want another one. Um, and, and the unfortunate part is that we could find ourselves so far down a track that it's hard to turn around. You know, there's a um, in uh, I forget what the term is, but in World War II they they learned that you could take these fighter planes and put them in a steep enough dive uh, compressibility where they would get so much speed that they couldn't pull out of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, because you got the airflow over the wing credit. Right. Well, we could get into so steep of a dive with healthcare you can't pull out of it. You you could get too far down the road of price controls or Medicare for all where by the time somebody goes, you know what, that really didn't work. Sorry, you know now you're burning in because mm -hmm. it's too late. I, I think the last thing that we want to cover on is I think probably the most important and the most that we care about uh, at the Flight Landing Podcast and at Fulcrum Strategies, and that's how is this going to uh, affect, if it's passed, how is this going to affect um, the average physician out there in the U.S. right now, or will it affect them at all? Well, for, for some, especially this bill, because it's so few drugs, et cetera, it may not affect them, you know, at all. Um, they don't make their money on these Part D drugs. They don't, you know, um, the only way it will affect them is if there's an impasse between what the government wants to pay and a manufacturer. And suddenly, you know, this doctor who didn't do anything wrong and there's got a patient sitting in there going, doctor, I can't get that drug. Prescribe me something else. And the doctor, well, there's really nothing else that works as good as that. You know, and I, I don't want to see doctors put in, but I got to give you second class care because you know, somebody miscalculated this. Mm -hmm. um, it's that old thing, you know, when elephants fight, only the grass gets hurt. Um, so that's one thing. Now, when we start moving into the Part B um, drugs, these are those higher cost infusion drugs, et cetera, you know, they get paid under the medical benefit. There are a lot of physicians who um, do make a fair amount of their income on the, the providing of those drugs. Um, and if the price of those drugs goes down, the amount of profit, if you will, that they make by providing that drug goes down. And, you know, that could hit the specialties of oncology, rheumatology, neurology, who do a fair amount of that. Now, one could make the argument, and I understand the argument, that they shouldn't be making their money on selling a drug. And my counter argument to that is, and a neurologist and an oncologist and a rheumatologist shouldn't be paid the same amount for an office visit right. as a pediatrician, but they are in many cases. No disrespect to pediatricians. It's a different cognitive pathway when you're dealing with cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or MS mm -hmm. in an exam. So it's, again, it's don't hate the player, hate the game. So that's how it could. But to a large degree, as this current bill currently stands, it could pass. And to be honest with you, the average physician wouldn't even know it. And finally, putting this into our healthcare equation, does it uh, affect access to care? Only if they run into a problem with these drugs being on the Medicare, um, on the Medicare approved list. If somebody, mm -hmm. you know, if a drug company goes, well, I'm not doing it and pull my drug and see how much, you know, that in some respects, if it passes, I almost want to see that happen just to see how quickly the, you know, the senators in every state that has a retiree start scrambling and standing up going, well, I didn't, I didn't approve it for that reason. I right. was opposed to it all along, whether they voted mm -hmm. for it or not, you know, because once it starts impacting, you know, the senior citizens in your state, suddenly this thing will be a pariah. And, and interestingly enough, and I won't go into all the states because we just don't have time, the Kaiser Family Foundation report does have a list of how many uh, Medicare beneficiaries it would affect in each state. 
mm-hmm. um, just based off the enrollment numbers. Obviously, California and Texas are at the top, mm-hmm. uh, followed closely by New York and Florida. Yeah. How does this affect um, the universality of of healthcare, or will it? Um, well, you know, by its nature, right now is just this. This is Medicare. Right. You know? So you know, we're really talking about. Um, a law that only impacts senior citizens and only impacts people on Medicare. You know, it's an easy pathway to get down to, you know, Medicaid and then commercial insurance and that kind of stuff, but it's only Medicare. So, you know, the other scenario of this is, are we creating more of a double standard of care? You know, and, you know, I've heard some lawyers say some legalities about, well, if I'm a non-Medicare person and, you know, there's a better price for Medicare than there is for me. Do I have some beef with the federal government that they did harm to me and not to the, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but there's a lot of questions that get raised from something, again, that really is a lot to do about nothing. And finally, affordability? Uh, You know, I mean, if the CBO is right and they're not, they don't have a real good track record of being right, (laughs) you know, um, $20 billion a year for the next 10 years. I mean, yeah, it sounds like a big number, but if you're comparing that to a four, five, six trillion dollar federal budget, boy, it's not even a rounding error. So, you know, I'm not looking for a big tax break from this. I'm not looking for my Medicare premiums to go down when I hit 65. It's just not that consequential. Well, uh, if you want to learn more about this, we will have the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation report on a link in the show notes as well, plus uh, the column from Sally Pipes and Robert Moffat, PhD, as well. Ron, thanks for joining us on the Flatlining Podcast this week. This has been great. Thank you. For our final thought today on the Flatlining Podcast, remember when we were discussing COVID-19 vaccine beliefs among parents just a little while ago? 55% of parents with children ages 6 months to 4 years say the information they are receiving from federal health agencies is confusing. That includes the FDA and the CDC. Keeping that number in mind, 70% of parents say they've not talked to their child's pediatrician about the COVID-19 vaccines. Even among different income levels, the majority of parents have not talked to their child's doctor about whether or not these vaccines are safe and effective. Our advice? Talk to your child's pediatrician. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.